If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 6, and we will be in verses 45 through 52. Uh, You will remember what has led us into this particular passage of Scripture over the past two weeks. We've looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000, and he has, for the past two weeks, had compassion on the people. He has fed the 5,000, and uh, the point has come that it is now time to send his disciples into the boat across the sea. So let's pick up in verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost And they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the winds ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray together to the Lord. Would you open wide our hearts to be receptive to what your word would call us towards? We thank you for the songs that we've sung, the the opportunities that we've had to talk in our Bible fellowship classes and converse with one another, but we always, as we do every Sunday, we want to pray that your word would be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, that the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you, because you are our rock and our redeemer. So lead us, guide us, Lord, as we walk through and are nourished by your word right now. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. First thing that you see is, number one, Jesus sends his disciples away. Jesus is going to send his disciples away. So let's get a little context for what is happening. Here in this passage, Jesus is going to send his disciples away because we see in John chapter 6, verse 15, that the people, as Jesus has just fed the 5,000 men, are beginning to feel like Jesus would be a good ruler. Right, you see in John chapter 6, 15 that the people are conspiring and Jesus feels in his heart that the people are about to come to Jesus and take him by force to be a political king. And so uh, there's a little bit of rumble, a little bit of excitement because the people, think about what they've experienced. They've rushed to the other side to get to Jesus before he can even get off in this moment of rest with his apostles. They've run to him and they brought everybody out of the cities to get to him to begin to hear his teaching. And Jesus doesn't just have a Winn-Dixie behind him to be able to feed all the people. He miraculously breaks five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplies it out so that everybody is fed to the point that they are full and overflowed with food. And so they're seeing all this miraculous work of Jesus. They're listening to all these teachings, and they believe that Jesus would make a fine political ruler for them, a fine king that would give them all that they would need, right, to protect them and guide them and lead them to make sure that they are taken care of. And so they're going to take Jesus by force to be their king. Now, you and I know very well that this is not why Jesus came to this earth, Jesus did not come to this planet to be a good political ruler, a good political leader. He didn't come to save a particular country. He didn't come to save a particular country's political power. Jesus came to die for our sins and the sins of the whole world. And so for Jesus to get taken by this in John 6, 15, to perceive in their heart that the people wanted to take him by force to be a ruler was not in Jesus's calling. And so Jesus is going to retreat and take his disciples and send them away on a boat while he dismisses the crowd. Now, I want to pause just for a moment because this is 
a critical portion of this scripture and something that we continue to see over and over and over as we dissect the book of Mark and we see in the whole counsel of God's word. Jesus is going to take the disciples, and you see right here in 45, immediately he made or he led or he got his disciples to get into the boat to go out before him to the other side to the Bethsaida. So Jesus gets his disciples in the boat. His calling was disciples get in the boat and go to the other side. Jesus calling his disciples into the boat, sending them out, knowing what we do, that this storm was about to come into their life. Jesus, the man, God, sending them out in the boat, understanding that a storm was coming their way, understanding that they would face a storm, understanding that they were about to get uh, tossed by the storms and the waves. Can I tell you just for clarity of what we're talking about, that if we follow Jesus, letter to the core, if we follow Jesus with our lives, if we do what he has called us to, if we listen and obey God's teaching in our life, it does not and it will not preclude us from facing the storms that life brings us. It simply will not. As we've looked at the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation, as we've seen over and over again that as we follow Jesus, it does not insulate and isolate us from coming across difficulty and storms and struggles and just frustrations in our life. As much as I would tell you that the prosperity gospel that would say health, wellness, and prosperity is biblical, it is simply not because we see all the way in the pages of scripture, it's not to be found. And so as you come to this and see Jesus sending his apostles out, sending them out onto the boat, is a reality that the storm would come their way. Just several weeks ago, we looked at John the Baptist, who was simply following God's calling in his life to preach the message of good news, to speak speak out against the injustice and sin that is around him. John the Baptist did not skate through easily in this world. Remember that whole fun Father's Day sermon on the beheading of John the Baptist? Right? Health. Wellness and prosperity did not come to John the Baptist as he followed the Lord's calling in his life. As we looked at Paul, a man who followed the Lord's calling in his life, found himself in prison time and time again, facing persecution for the following of God in his life. And so as Jesus sends his apostles away, I just remind us, and I don't say this with levity, just saying, hey, expect it, it's coming, it's going to be easy. That when we follow Jesus, even when we are trusting in him with everything that we have, following him as closely as we know how, we will face trials. We will face difficulties. There may be seasons of sickness. We may walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We may face the loss of jobs and homes and so many different things. We may face cancers and sickness and struggles in our life. I simply don't say it with levity, saying, just expect it, it's coming. I know that it's hard and difficult. And the apostles that are sitting on this boat are saying, well, we should have expected it. No, it's hard and difficult. But we'll see as we get to the end of this, we understand the fullness of this story. We understand who's in the boat alongside of us. We know who goes before us and with us and is on our side. But I, I simply just don't want us to miss the reality of the truth of God's word. As we follow Jesus, prepare that we live in a fallen world. And even though you may be going with Jesus the best that you know how, it's possible that that storm is right smack dab in the middle of God's will for your life. 
And so, friends, Jesus sends his apostles away, sends his disciples away, and you come to number two, that Jesus would then withdraw to pray. Jesus sends his disciples out, and after he had taken leave of them in verse 46, he went up on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he began to pray. And he saw the boat that was making headway painfully, and um, the fourth watch of the night came. Jesus withdraws here to pray. Now, in the book of Mark, we see three separate times in which Jesus is going to withdraw to pray. The first we've talked about in Mark 135 is he came to a point in his ministry in which the people were just not getting it. There's a period of frustration for Jesus to say, Am I, is this where I'm going? Do I need to do something different? There's a, a crisis moment, maybe not the biggest of crises, but it's the first crisis. And we come to this second crisis where the people would call him to be a political ruler and a king, which would lead us to the third crisis that Jesus would withdraw to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a possibility in each of these times as Jesus is withdrawing to pray where he's focusing on what his mission is, what he is called to do, which ultimately would culminate him on dying on the cross. Friends, this is a simple point. Jesus withdraws to pray. You and I should withdraw to pray. And we could leave it at that. And that would be a good point. It would be a good take-home point that you could walk out this church with. It would be very instructive and important. But I want us to see the critical juncture and the critical importance of us praying and have a life of prayer. Jesus obviously prayed more than three times throughout the scriptures, but the gospel writer of Mark would want to see the importance of you and I seeing Jesus intentionally withdrawing to pray in critical moments and critical junctures of his ministry. See, if Jesus did not see prayer as important, I simply don't think he would have done it. If Jesus didn't see prayer as effective, I don't think he would have done it. If Jesus didn't see prayer as essential to his calling, I don't think he would have done it. But instead, Jesus saw prayer as an essential and important and effective part of his ministry. He he had to withdraw to pray. He needed to withdraw to pray. And he found that he was not just praying to nobody. As we're not singing to nobody, he's praying to his heavenly father. You and I pray not just to the walls. We're praying to a heavenly father that listens to his people. And so when Jesus withdraws to pray, he's not simply just saying, well, follow me because I'm praying. He understands the importance and the essential nature of it. So for you and me, yes, we do withdraw to pray because it is essential, it is important, and it is effective in the life of a believer. It's something that we should do, will do. It's not a last priority on the totem pole. It is something that we are drawn to because it's effective and it's working. So Jesus, in this critical critical juncture, withdraws himself to pray, to commune with his father, to fix his eyes onto Calvary, which is where he was called to go. And then you see, as Jesus is praying in verse 48, he saw that the apostles were making headway painfully. This Greek word painfully would mean they're tortured. They're tortured as they're rowing, they're rowing, they're getting nowhere, it's not quiet and calm. They are rowing and rowing and they are going nowhere in the midst of this storm. He saw that they were making headway tortuously, if that's even a word, and they, the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night between three and six o'clock in the morning, Jesus came by them walking on the sea. I want to just pause again for a moment because this is, this is so critical. 
I grew up, as I've told you many times, on the second row of our church, many, many, many years and many sermons, many times going through the children's Bible with my mom and dad, seeing Jesus walking on water. And at times it gets so acutely normal that we miss the weight of this miracle, that Jesus walks on the water. A simple miracle that if we understand it and if we believe it should simply change everything about the way that we live our lives. So much so that as I was researching this uh, and just looking at uh, Jesus walking on the water and just Googling it and see what else comes up with, I found that there is a lot of scholars and a lot of uh, even biblical scholars who may have departed from the truth who would liken this miracle as with others as a way to rationalize it out. There's some scholars that would say that at this time in this area that Jesus most likely floated on a piece of ice that he would have rowed in a boat until a central point found a piece of ice and gotten out on that piece of ice and somehow was able to kind of gain his balance and do enough uh, gymnastics or something to float by the disciples as they're in the boat. And if you look at Peter's example, it would mean that Jesus was able to, to find a boat, get on this piece of ice and let Peter also step out on a piece of ice, but only for a short amount of time before Peter began to sink. And so some Scholars would say that Jesus floated by on a piece of ice as a way to make this miracle make sense. Other scholars would say that Jesus in this time place and and particular uh, place was actually on a sandbar and that Jesus walked by on a sandbar and he was in a a place in which he could walk and so it looked like that he was walking on water. And so this is a way to rationalize what happened. If you go back in the breaking of the bread and the 5,000, that maybe Jesus didn't actually break the five, the, the five loaves and two fish, that he actually had more of a communal meal. And he was able to get word out that everybody, anything you have, just like those five bread and two fish, if anybody has stuff, let's just share a big communal meal. And that's how Jesus fed the 5,000. Because the reality is, if Jesus did walk on water, that changes things. If you're a scholar looking at this text and say, well, Jesus surely could not have walked on water. He has, he has to walk on ice. He has to walk on a sandbar because if somebody walked on water, that means something. And you and I know as a kid, you play the game where you run into the pool and you see how many steps you can take on top of the water before you fall in, right? You can't do it. You just can't. We've tried. We've all been there. You've done that. You bought the t-shirt in the pool trying to walk across. You just can't do it. And so for Jesus to say and Jesus to walk on waters, for us to look at this miracle and not say, oh, yeah, Jesus walked on water. The reality of this situation is if Jesus did, in fact, walk on water, it changes everything. If Jesus did indeed look at some pigs and take this demon or look at this demon possessed man and tell these demons to go into a pig and they go over the cliff, that means something. If Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and broke them and fed 5,000 upon many, many more, that means something. If Jesus spoke with authority over the word, if Jesus healed people with his word and with his touch, if he brought the, the, the paraplegic out, if Jesus did all these things with the miraculous words and touch, that means something. And so before we just look at this and say, that's great, Jesus walked on water understand the implications inherent of Jesus simply walking on the water. It changes everything. Because eventually, if we believe that Jesus walked on water, we understand that Jesus did even much more than that. That Jesus would one day be on a cross with nails in his hands and in his feet. 
And Jesus would do a miracle much greater than walking on water. He would take your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world and save us from death. This is the beautiful part of this, is this miracle teaches us and shows us so much more. And as Jesus comes to this boat, walking by them, they were all terrified. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them. And what does he say? As the terror is filling their hearts, so often in Scripture, when terror grips the people, the angel will say, or Jesus will say what? Do not be afraid. Here, Jesus says, take heart. It is I. Jesus said, take heart. It is I. This likens us back as we go back again to the Exodus story as Moses is standing in front of the burning bush with questions raging in his head. How am I going to go to this Pharaoh? I'm a babbling fool. I can't say anything. I'm scared to death. What am I going to do? Go to Pharaoh and say, on Moses' authority, let these people go. Nobody's going to listen to me. They're going to laugh me out of town. Who should I even say is sending me? And what does God say to Moses? I am who I am is sending you. And so in the same way, Jesus says, don't be discouraged, take heart. It is I, the good shepherd, the Lord that will lead you and guide you. I, it is I. These past few weeks, I've had the joy, as VBS has wrapped up, to have parents and kids come by my office and do a little baptism tour. We've had this wonderful joy. One of my favorite parts of the job here is taking kids on baptism tours and talking about what it means to follow Jesus and be baptized. There's always that moment as we're standing in that baptistry with no water in it yet. I always ask them, hey, are you nervous? And sometimes adults, kids, they always say, I'm a little nervous, right? There's no people out there yet, but I'm nervous. And I get to share with them that on Sunday mornings when I preach, there's a lot of times I I get nervous. And so I I grab hold of this pulpit right here and just hold on and uh, just start preaching. I say, the good news is there's always a beautiful reminder that right here, right behind this pulpit, right in the center of this church is this beautiful depiction of Jesus. And even though there's times where I get nervous and I get discouraged, I look and think behind me that Jesus is right behind you. And when they get baptized, friends, I tell them, hey, when you get baptized, know that you're going to get dunked beneath the water and know who is right there behind you, right there with you. It's Jesus because he is always with you. He never leaves you. He is holding you fast. And so this picture, do not be discouraged. Take heart. Friends, this picture is right here of Jesus, but it's a picture that Jesus is your good shepherd. He's with you. He doesn't leave you nor forsake you. He is with you always to the end of the earth. And so this reminder is Jesus, number four, identifies himself. He says, take courage. Do not fear. Even though at times we are in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the sea, terrified, not knowing what to do, not knowing if we can paddle even further, another step further. Jesus simply says, take heart. It is I. Take heart. It's not you. You don't have to do it. You don't have to keep going. You'll be okay. Take heart. It is I. The God that you remember just a few times ago spoke and these seas ceased their raging. The God that you remember spoke healing over a person. The God that you remember spoke with authority the word. The God that you remember broke bread and fed the multitudes. That's the God that's here with you now. So you see, as Jesus says, take heart, it is I. Verse 51, he got into the boat and the winds ceased and they were utterly astonished. 
But verse 52 brings this story to a little bit of an interesting conclusion. For they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Number five, the disciples' hearts were hardened. As we've talked, we've seen in Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, 5, and 6, the disciples have witnessed, they've seen, they've experienced over and over and over again the goodness of the Lord, the miraculous signs and wonders that the Lord has done. Yet here, they don't understand the fullness of the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. There's a moment here I would just want to pull my hair out and just say, disciples, how can y'all miss this, guys? You're, you're right there with Jesus. How can your heart still be hardened? As mom would always say, when you point the finger, you got three pointed right back at you. Because oftentimes I see the goodness of the Lord time and time and time and time and time again. I read his word, I, I know it, I believe it, I see it, and I trust it. But at times I harden my heart against confessing sin against doing his calling in my life. And I'm so thankful that we see the end of the story that disciples trust and understand at the end of the day and they spread the good news message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm thankful that even though their hearts were hardened, the Lord continued to hold them fast. And I pray he does the same for you and me as we follow him. Let's pray together to Lord help us. Thank you, Lord, that at times you send us out Lord, we understand and we recognize that walking in this world, at times we do face storms and trials and temptations. Lord, we, we need your strength. We need your comfort. And Lord, we want you to be our shepherd and our guide that would lead us beside still waters, that would restore our souls, that would protect us, Lord. For today, we afresh and anew want to submit our hearts to you. We offer our lives as a living sacrifice and say, Lord, wherever you would lead, we want to go. Wherever you would need to scalpel from our hearts, Lord, you take and do. Or would you help us see the miraculous miracle that you have done? And let us wrestle with the reality that you are God and that you have saved us from the pit of hell. Would we live our lives accordingly? In your name we pray, amen.